Let's go Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens. Our lights do funny things. All right. This is why we're replacing them. All right. So one of these days it'll get done. All right. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, of your very own, it's really dark behind me. That's weird. All right. So the text will probably be on the screen. They're worried about other stuff. We'll see. All right. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there's actually some physical ones in the little racks underneath the seats. You can grab one of those. Uh, those always work, whether the electricity is doing funky stuff or not. Um, and so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, you can take that one home. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing him, to be filtered through the lens of that knowledge and relationship with him, and that the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like put the pieces together, do the math real quick, carry the one. That's We want you to be reading the Bible. All right, so... Ruth chapter 1. We kicked off a new thing last Sunday. We opened up our account on the book of Ruth together. We started a brand new series. And if you're, if you're not familiar with it, Ruth is a tiny, tiny little story kind of sandwiched in between two major stories uh, in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, the time of the judges and uh, kind of the introduction of the, the kingly monarchical system. Uh, those are things that are on our mind this week, right? right? And so uh, there, there's, there's kind of two bookends of the of the story of the Old Testament, uh, the, the, uh, at least the story of the promised land. And so Ruth kind of happens at the tail end of the Judges. This is a little story that's happening in the middle of it. And upon entering into this promised land, this land flowing, supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, right? Uh, the Israelites are tasked with driving out the, pa- uh, the pagan inhabitants of this incredible like they're these incredibly wicked people that were living in the land when God's people showed up, all right? Uh, they're not nice folks at all, uh, but upon entering the land, the Israelites are tasked with driving them out so they can claim the land for themselves, uh, but the story goes, they failed to do that, or at least do it sufficiently. Uh, they kind of gave up halfway through, and that leads them into taking up the pagan practices of their neighbors, Creating a giant mess of things um, that leads them into deeper and deeper and deeper sin. and Their society falls apart. They ultimately fall victim and even slaves to many of these neighboring nations. And so Israel goes, wait a second, where's, where's this promise of the promised land? And so they cry out to God to save them, right? That's the story of the judges. God f- listens to them in spite of them. And he raises up somebody to save them, a warrior king figure that we call a judge. That's how the, the, the book of Judges gets its name. It's this repeating cycle, 200 to 300 year cycle, where God's people cry out to save them, and God raises up somebody to save them, brings them a redeemer, brings them a savior figure, and everything's fine for a few years, and then, well, the cycle starts all over again, they fall right back into their mess. It's a pretty dark, chaotic time in Israel's history. It's not their proudest moment. Nobody in Israel's history goes, you know what, I really wish we had more judges in our life. really wish we could go back to that time period. Even as the nation of Israel can't get out of its own way, God is working, we find out, in the background. 
during this time period, even as he lets them wallow in their sin and then raises them back up and lets them wallow in their sin and raises them back up, even as all of that is going on, we learn from the book of Ruth that God is working in the background. All right? uh, but not just, to, not just to, uh, to take the next step of his cosmic plan of redemption, that's a really big deal, but also to finally break the two to three hundred year of nonsense. He's going to put an end to the cycle. It's not merely functional during this time period. The story of Ruth is also, I think, quite lovely. It's actually beautiful. In fact, I I think I'm ready to plant my flag in Ruth being maybe just the best romance story the world has ever seen. Now, calling Ruth a romance, if you weren't here last week, might have lost you. Like, who gets excited about a romance story? Half the room. (laughs) Half the room. It's been my experience that a lot of guys keep the story of Ruth at arm's length because they kind of tend to put it in the same exact category as the rom-coms they're sometimes forced to watch with their wife. All right? Can we we be honest about that? Um, We all know what kind of of movies we're talking about here, right? It's the one where the problems aren't actually problems and the solutions aren't actually solutions. Have you seen that movie? There would be no plot at all if the two leads managed to get out of their own way for five seconds in a row. Don't act like you haven't seen that movie. Now, gentlemen, good husbands, really good husbands, Christ-like husbands, they are inclined towards self-sacrifice, and they will always be actively looking for ways to enjoy what their wives enjoy. All right? So just go ahead and make plans this week to shut up and watch the movie. It is entirely possible to simultaneously mock the cheesy rom-com and find a way to enjoy the cheesy rom-com. You can do both. You're a big boy. But it is also a categorical error to lump Ruth in with the cheesy rom-coms. Because Ruth ain't got no room for cheesy. In fact, Ruth is very, very real. We saw last week that Ruth begins with a descent into disaster. And I'm not talking about pseudo-disasters that the typical romantic comedy tries to pass off. No, I'm talking about actual disaster. A man's sin and refusal to repent drags his family into his sin and the consequences of his sin and the fallout leaves behind a destitute woman living in a foreign land who has to bury her sons and her husband. Elimelech runs away from God's call on Israel as a nation to repent and trust in the Lord alone. He moves his family to an even more sinful, wicked nation, and he tries to chase after fruitfulness on his very own terms. But as we discovered last week, God will not allow him to find fruitfulness away from him. Right? And Elimelech's wife, Naomi, whether she's a co-conspirator in this plan or she's just an innocent victim that was dragged along. We don't know. We don't know. But Naomi loses everything that she traveled to Moab with. It's all gone. And that's where we left things off in verse 5 last week. Naomi's life is <laughs> it's in shambles, man. It is absolutely wrecked. Everything she found joy in, everything she banked her future upon, it has all been taken from her. And last week, last week we asked the question, okay, let's say you were in Naomi's shoes or, or similar shoes, how would you respond? That was the question we left things with last week, right? And so, but now, now we get to look at how, well, how Naomi and her daughters-in-law respond. 
We get to look at Naomi's response, and that starts in verse 6. So join me there. Ruth 1, verse 6. Then she, talking about Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. All right, so what does Naomi do? She packs up and goes home, right? She decides that it's time to go back home. Now, there's not much that Naomi can do other than go home. Have you thought through this situation at all? Like, those of you who actually maybe spent some time this week trying to think, what would I do in Naomi's shoes? Like, like she doesn't have a lot of options here. She's a woman and a foreigner. She had absolutely no rights in the land of Moab. There's no future for her there. She has no way to continue making a life for her. Even while her husband Elimelech was alive, all right, he wouldn't have been allowed to purchase land as a foreigner in Moab. They would have told him no. All right? He wouldn't have been allowed to own anything. And so here in verse 6, when it says that she was out in the fields, it's, it leads us to believe that Elimelech probably attached himself to some kind of tenant farming, which means, if you're not familiar with that, they were allowed to live on someone else's land because they worked the fields for that person. When Elimelech died and his two grown sons were still around, like everything was fine. There were still two young men putting in the work. But as soon as Malan and Killian died, well, that changes things, right? You change the level of work being received, and that changes the equation on whether a landowner thinks you're worth housing. So the text doesn't spell it out verbatim, but based on what we know about the time period, based upon what we know about the cultures involved, there's a pretty good reason to believe here that Naomi is on the clock. And she feels it ticking. It's not just that she's lost her husband and her sons. She's probably also about to lose her home. And then she hears a rumor. The fields in Bethlehem are full of grain again. The famine is over. The Lord has visited his people. Oftentimes, um, I think we can all agree that most of the time, the rumor mill is just a big old bunch of hot garbage, right? <laughs> um, but sometimes, sometimes God seems to enjoy using it for his good purposes. Naomi hears that God had visited his people, which is, I think, an interesting way of phrasing things for a couple of reasons. One, a sin-fueled famine is ultimately put to an end by God showing up. That's unique. Like, we tend to think in only physical terms. Oh, the rain finally came. Oh, the crops were finally plentiful. No, no, God visited his people. God drew near. See, the repeating cycle of sin and slavery and salvation that Israel keeps walking into that roller coaster ride, it seems that Israel has reached one of its better moments. Things are a little healthier in Israel for right now. It's probably not going to last long. We know how the rest of the story goes. But Israel seems to be in, in one of its better moments. And so an end to the famine is not merely the physical reality of the fields finally being ready to harvest. No, it is also the presence of the Lord amongst his people. But there's a second thing that's really interesting to me about the phrasing here. Nothing needs to be pointed out. The narrator of Ruth is the one putting words in Naomi's mouth. All right, We all get that. 
but he or she, whoever they are, they are choosing very specific words for a very specific reason. And we're told that Naomi hears that God had visited his people, not their people, or her people. Which causes me to ask the question, does does Naomi believe that she is one? Does Naomi right now believe that she is one of God's people? Or is this our first little glimpse into Naomi's response for all the things that have fallen apart in her life? We put in the work last week to show that that it was sin that got them into this mess, an incredibly tangled web of personal sin and familial sin and societal sin. Returning home, quote-unquote, that does not automatically mean repentance. It's not like Naomi has changed her mind about God or, or, or what he is doing in her life. Naomi is forced into this move because Naomi is incredibly destitute right now. But she hears through the grapevine that Bethlehem has bread once again. So, Have you ever been in a situation where you tried to go your own way and God just kept removing option after option after option until the only option you were left with was the one you should have chosen all along? Anybody else there? Looking back on that moment, was that God's hand against you? Or, or do you think it might have been his hand working good for you? An even harder, more fun question. Like, that's a hindsight kind of knowledge. How'd you feel about it then? In that moment, how did you view God in your circumstances? We're told that Naomi sets out to go back to the land of Judah, back to Bethlehem, but it's not because Naomi has suddenly changed how she views God and views the world. No, she's being channeled into this decision by a sovereign Lord who is pulling the strings. God who wants good for her long before she is aware of his goodness. Long before she is conscious of his good plan for her. We're also told that she's got Ruth and Orpah in tow. Look at at what comes next in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So they get a little ways down the road, we're told, and Naomi decides that Ruth and Orpah need to turn around and go back. They start, uh, they start the journey together, it seems, but Naomi now wants to send them back home. So what in the world is that about? That seems weird, right? Like they start down the road, and then all of a sudden, and now you need to go back. Well, I depended a lot on Alistair Begg's uh, Ruth series from several years ago. He still had a lot more hair then. All right. um, I, I depended on his series uh, to kind of map out and give a trajectory, help give some structure to our own effort. And when Begg got to this verse, uh, he suggests that this might be an incredibly typical way to say goodbye in the ancient Near East during this time period. Time period. You travel down the road a little ways with some Somebody you love before you send them on their way. All right, and that, I mean, Beg's a really smart guy, like a really smart guy, like dangerously smart. All right, and so he, he might be on something there. In fact, there's a good bit of logic to his argument. Uh, for us in America, goodbyes, um, they're often incredibly short 
compared to the way that the rest of the world tends to handle goodbyes. In fact, so much so that other cultures have often accused us of being rude by saying goodbye so quickly. And so that, that difference, that's not just a, a 2022 kind of difference. That would have been incredibly more pronounced in all of the cultures of the Bible. Like all of them. When Jesus tells his followers to go two miles with someone who demanded one from them, there's a cultural understanding of hospitality buried in that command that his original audience would have immediately grabbed hold of. And so Beg might, might actually be onto something there. Maybe it is how Naomi and Ruth and Orpah would have naturally said goodbye in their culture. But there's also, at the same time, there's also layers to this that give me pause. And the biggest one is Naomi's own headspace. We're going to see Naomi speak in an incredibly endearing way to these young women in just a moment. She starts calling them my daughters in verse 11. She doesn't separate out daughters-in-law. She starts calling them my daughters. She genuinely loves them and, and wants incredible good for them. There's no doubt about that in the text. Not a bit. But those of you who have lost loved ones, you, you know for certain that daily reminders of that lost one, loved one, it, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not something you just ignore. Naomi is returning home a broken woman. God had emptied her of everything that she believes is valuable in her life. She was returning home in the hopes that, that, that her opportunity in her homeland, the land of Judah, might be a little bit better than in the foreign land of Moab. She's going with just, I guess, the hope and a whim that her own people will be kinder to her and help her more than a foreign people. She's just going to roll in the dice here. We can speak honestly about the reality of this situation. Like, Not only are Ruth and Orpah extra mouths to feed, but they're also a persistent reminder of everything Naomi's lost. I can kind of buy the argument that walking a ways down the road with someone is a typical goodbye for them. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. It'll probably carry a lot, a lot of weight, but... I'm, I'm more inclined to think that the real-world complexity that is love and grief and practical answers to very real problems, I think it's entirely possible that Naomi both wants good for these young women and doesn't want to be burdened by these young women. I don't think we have to choose one or the other. I think both are true for Naomi. And like so many of us before, I, I, I found myself in exactly these kind of places. I think it takes Naomi a while to finally kind of drum up the bravery to finally speak up about it. She, she gets a little ways down the road and she says, oh, we can't do this. We can't do this. There's so much more opportunity for you if you go back to your mother's house. You must turn around and go home. Please don't follow me. You've dealt kindly with my sons. You've dealt kindly with me. May the Lord bless you. Notice the capital letters in there in the word Lord. That's, that's a little gimmick that the ESV translation that we use it uses to indicate that the author has, has kind of replaced that for the covenant name of God. It's called the Tetragrammaton if you're a theology nerd like me. Four Hebrew letters. Yod, He, Va, and He. We have no idea how to pronounce it. We guess and say Yahweh. Naomi invokes 
the covenant name that God gave to his people to know him by. And she says, may he give you rest in the house of new husbands. These two young women, their greatest likelihood of quote-unquote a successful life, it will obviously be going back home and finding somebody who's willing to marry him. It is the truth. And so Naomi says, don't follow me. Go home. Go home. You have a better shot at life if you go home. Naomi mentions their mother's house, not their father's house. It's not because their fathers are not alive anymore. It's because Naomi is saying, I can't be the mom that you need me to be. And what's the result of Naomi's command? We're told, we're told that the woman wept aloud together. Insert joke here about women crying. I'm kidding. I could never get away with that. But listen, crying is not all they do. Look at the next verse, verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. All right, so they press back, right? Like they start to argue with her a little bit. We're told that the women were, uh, wept together, uh, and, and they, and the, but they also cling to her. Not only does Naomi love these girls, but clearly these, lo- these girls, they love Naomi as well. They see her as a mother. Naomi's first attempt to convince them to go back is absolutely fruitless. It does not work. But, but Naomi also presses on. She's, she's serious here. And so look at verse 11. It says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. All right, so Naomi presses even harder here. Not only is there no future for you with me, but there's not even a hope of a future, she says. That's a pretty dark place. And then she spells out exactly why there's no hope. She says, not only do I have no, not only do I not have any more sons that you could potentially marry, but if I were to somehow find myself suddenly in a position where I could possibly even provide another son, by the time he was old enough, he would, you would be past childbearing age yourself. It would be too late. And if you're new to the Bible, new to the story of Ruth, that logic comes all the way out of left field for you, right? What in the world is Naomi talking about? Well, she's talking about a custom known as leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. It's where a deceased man's brother would take his brother's widow as another wife for himself, thereby providing for the woman. And then the firstborn son of that union would become legally known as the heir of the deceased brother, thereby honoring the brother that has died and perpetuating the family line. It was an incredibly unique system. It was a custom that was practiced by a number of clan-based peoples during that part of history. You can find it in, like dotted around all kinds of places in the world. We've got proof that it was practiced in Babylon, and we've got pretty solid evidence that it was practiced by a number of Canaanite peoples. And so it's quite possible, entirely possible, that it was practiced by the Moabites as well. At the very least... Ruth and Orpah are familiar with the practice because all their neighbors practiced it. They know what Naomi is talking about. But God actually codified 
this practice for the Israelites in Deuteronomy 25. He gives it as a command. And the entire point, the entire point of leveret marriage was to extend honor and provision. Both of those two, two things. It cared for the widow and it brought an honored future to the extended family. And an incredible shame was cast on a brother who refused to own that responsibility. The only example we have in the Bible uh, of leveret marriage before the book of Ruth comes from uh, the, the case of Onan and Tamar. Those of you who are familiar with the story, I'm just going to like keep it like that because there's kids in the room. All right? But the, the, the issue in that moment, the issue in that story, is that Onan took the conjugal rights of Tamar as a wife, but refused to give her a child. Refused to give her honor and provision. He took, but maliciously withheld all the good things that come with that taking. And the Bible says that God killed him for it. It's a serious issue. So Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, they, they, they all understand what Naomi is talking about. This isn't some kind of foreign concept to them. Nobody is confused by this. But in this situation, there aren't any brothers. There, there are no other brothers. Malan and Killian are dead. There's no third son. And Naomi says, even if I were to magically find a husband tonight and have a child for you, it would be too late by the time that that boy was old enough to fulfill such a duty. So turn around. Go back home while you still have time to find hope for you. Your best hope for a future is not with me and my people. Your best hope for you is with your own people. Don't, don't tie yourself to me and my bitterness because my God has set his hand against me. And even as we read that, right, like, like we start to get the sense of multiple angles of thought and feeling kind of flowing out of Naomi, right? Like, like she's factually correct. She's factually correct. Ruth and Orpah, they do, absolutely, without a doubt, they have a greater chance of earthly success, however they define earthly success. They have a better chance of that if they go back to their mother's house. That is factually true. But at the same time, man, Naomi has also, also falsely convinced herself that absolutely nothing in her life will ever be good ever again. Church family, sound logic and depression aren't mutually exclusive. You don't have to completely lose one in order to gain the other. A major factor in Naomi's thinking right now is the false belief, the incredibly wrong-headed belief that God is treating her with enmity. That he is actively and maybe even maliciously working against her. Now, in our more sane moments, we all know that that couldn't be any further from the truth, but Naomi isn't in one of those sane moments right now. Also willing to bet that you've got some less than sane moments that you're not so proud of. Just me? Okay, just me. Listen, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you walked in the door today convinced that the Lord has set his hand against you. Naomi, she does not understand at all. Uh, like, she, she doesn't misunderstand that, that God's at work here. She doesn't misunderstand that God is sovereign over the, the circumstances in her life, but she, she grossly misunderstands his posture toward her. She understands that God's in charge, but she seems to misunderstand who God is. 
It's not enmity against her. It's actually an incredible love for her. And we see the first glimpse of that incredible love play out beginning in verse 14. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah and Naomi, uh, Orpah decides that Naomi is right. She decides that she's got some truth to that. She gives Naomi a kiss and she goes home, we're told. Orpah loves Naomi dearly. And she also, at the same time, wants a family and a future. Those are both good things to have. Those of you who are more familiar with the story of Ruth, in my prep work of getting ready and then kind of figuring out how other people have approached this stuff, I looked at a lot of how other people have approached this letter. I discovered that it's not uncommon at all to see people try and cast Orpah in a negative way here. Over and over again, I saw this to be true. Uh, There are some who've described Orpah as selfish here. There are some who've described her as only having kind of a half-hearted concern for Naomi. But I don't think that's right at all. I don't think that's right at all. I think she highly values Naomi and Naomi's wisdom. I think Orpah seriously weighs what Naomi said here, and she turns around despite the pain that it causes her to turn around. And as an act of obedience to Naomi, she does what she believes to be right and practical. This is not an instance of one daughter loving and the other daughter kind of bailing out. Both daughters love Naomi deeply. And it is in that light, in that specific light, that Ruth's love is properly seen for the extraordinary thing that it is. We're told that Ruth clings to Naomi. And we need to hear in that phrasing all of the desperation that's intended. She clings to Naomi despite reason, despite practicality, despite even Naomi's explicit commands to turn around and go home, despite her explicit permission to to go and do so. Ruth doggedly refuses to separate herself. And so in verse 15, we see this. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, well, just stop there. Uh, She said, turn back after your sister-in-law. Naomi is still fighting, right? Like, she's still arguing. But notice something important about her reasoning here. She says Orpah has not only gone back to her people, but also to her gods. What we have here is an incredibly clear clear confession that Naomi, she, she doesn't seem to care who Ruth and Orpah are worshiping. She certainly wouldn't suggest the God of the Israelites. Look how it's fared for her. So we need to be very careful here to call things exactly what they are. The decision to stay or go, it's not, it's not merely a choice about finding a new husband or not finding a new husband. It's just as much a matter of worship. Ruth and Orpah's decisions are as spiritual as they are familial. Which, is, which I'm convinced is the catalyst for what comes next in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. There, uh, 17. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. All right, so hey, look, it's that, it's that one line from the book of Ruth that everybody in the room knows, right? We can, it only took us to week number two of this series. We can all pack up and go home, right? We now understand Ruth. Ruth clings 
to Naomi. There's both a desperation in her action and an unthwartable resolve in her action. Ruth knows exactly what she is committing herself to, and she doesn't hesitate for even a second. Can you picture this moment in your head? Ruth is hanging on to her. She loosens her grip. She stands up tall. Quit asking me to leave you. I don't want my people, and I don't want my gods. I want your people and your God. Quit asking me to leave you. Ruth ties her life and her future to Naomi. She says, wherever you go is where I am going to go. We will be together in this period, but not just some temporary trial period. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, Ruth commits to stay with Naomi, not just until Naomi dies, but until Ruth dies. They're going to have to bury me where they bury you. Get ready for it. Back in verse 8, Naomi invoked the covenant name of God as a blessing on the girls if, if they would go back. But here, Ruth invokes that same covenant name in a curse upon herself if she ever fails to live up to her commitment to Naomi. Ruth, the Moabitess, commits to following the God of Israel for the rest of her life and calls on him to hold her accountable for all of her problems. Is Ruth allowed to do that? Is, is Ruth allowed to do that? I mean, what exactly is Ruth's spiritual condition at this point in the story? As Christians and as Baptists beyond that, we're, we are decidedly conversionist people. I don't know if you know that about us. It means that uh, we don't believe that people can come to God accidentally. That just doesn't happen. Uh, so, like, people make a conscious decision to follow Christ and to trust his work to save them. But what does that mean for Old Testament characters? And even more so, what does that mean for Old Testament characters who are outside of the covenant family of Israel? Like, what do we do with that? Well, while we look backwards on the finished work of Christ to make payment for our sin, they don't, they don't have that, right? They, they, they don't have that in their back pocket. It's something that has happened. So trust it. So what, is, what do the Old Testament faithful do? Well, they look forward to, the, to God's promise of redemption. They look forward to everything he promised to do, a promise that was made public all the way back in Genesis 3. They trusted God's character. They trusted the testimony of his other fulfilled promises. But, but listen, whether God's people look forward or they look backwards, it has always and only ever been the sufficiency of Jesus that saves God's people. Jesus is the accomplisher. The Old Testament saints are just as capable of singing, yet not I, but Christ in me. We don't know much about how much exposure Ruth had to the true God uh, uh, in her 10 years of being married to, to Malan. Uh, scholars have long debated, I mean for a long time, uh, they have long debated uh, whether Ruth would have converted and begun worshiping Yahweh upon getting married to Malan, or if Elimelech's family just kind of ditched the true God and maybe accepted some of the Moabite gods upon their moving to Moab. Right, there's a lot of debate in there. Uh, we just don't know. But whether Ruth has been following the Lord for a decade now, or this is the very, very first time that she's committed herself to him, here's what we do know. You don't swear genuine oaths to God you don't believe in. You ever thought about that? You don't swear genuine oaths to gods you don't believe in. Either Ruth is genuinely committed to Yahweh as her God, or Ruth doesn't mean a single word she's saying right now. 
we ought to toss out everything. Either she has just absolutely committed herself to the true God and only the true God, or she's a manipulative liar and her character ought to be impugned through every inch of this story. There's no middle ground on this. Either Ruth is truly committed to the Lord or this entire story needs to be scrapped. And so how can we, little old us, how can we tell what's going on? Well, we look at the fruit that flows out of her declaration. Look at verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So Naomi understands that Ruth cannot be convinced otherwise. Uh, and so she, she stops arguing, we're told. Um, one commentator I looked at this week argued that uh, Naomi's silence here probably covers way more than just this topic, significantly more than just this topic. It's not just that she changed the subject and tried to, you know, just stop trying to convince Ruth to turn around. No, uh, the structure of the Hebrew in verse 18, the way that the, the, the sentence is structured, suggests that Naomi might have been quiet all the way to Bethlehem. Like the entire journey. That's, that's 25 miles. And they would have been going by foot. So that's a couple days worth of walking. You think that's an awkward silence? If that's true, if that's true, then Naomi's silence here is actually deafening. The author of Ruth wants us to awkwardly sit there and think about this action for a while. Before we go on to the rest of the story, it seems to be intended as a pregnant pause in the story so that we can wrap our heads around all of the implications that flow out of what Ruth just did. So take a second and think about what's going on in this story so far as it stands. Naomi sojourned with her husband and her sons to a foreign land. They settled there against the explicit commands of God and tried to make a life for themselves. She becomes a widow in that foreign land and then loses her sons in that foreign land. And now Naomi is returning home to her own people, completely empty, with no real hope of a future fruitfulness, and all in a desperate attempt to find some means of taking care of herself. By herself. But the author has made it very, very clear that Naomi is not alone. We also have Ruth, who, by the way, last I checked, is also a widow. Ruth rejects the better odds of finding another husband. She rejects her own culture. She rejects her own family. She rejects any attempt that she might have of uh, um, any attachment that she might have had to her former gods. And she commits to taking care of Naomi, and stop me if you've heard this story before, by becoming a widow living in a foreign land. In an act of incredible love towards Naomi, Ruth assumes the exact same burden that Naomi is currently running away from. There's a bit of a theme word in the book of Ruth that we haven't spent any time talking about yet. We've seen it once already in the text, but we flew right past it. It's the word kindness. Kindness. Back in verse 8, Naomi asks the Lord to deal kindly with the girls. And, and those of you with more exposure to the story of Ruth, more even just a longer church background, you've heard the teaching before of that Hebrew word. And, uh, that word for kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. Though if, if you want to say it properly, you've got to talk through your spit more than Americans are typically comfortable with. Chesed. All right? 
Hesed is often defined as an unfailing love. And just saying that out loud, like, like some of our eyes start to roll. Oh, come on. Unfailing love. Back to the rom-coms again. As a culture, we, we tend to spend our time emphasizing the love part of Hesed, and we, we wax poetic in speaking of it in an undying way. But to Ruth's original audience, love is not the primary emphasis of Hesed. Unfailing is the primary emphasis. The weight of Hesed is found in its extreme loyalty. We're told that Ruth clung to Naomi. Naomi's tried to get rid of her three times now, but Ruth ain't having it. She refuses to be pushed away. Another time that the word hesed is used in the book of Ruth is later in chapter 3 when Boaz is speaking to Ruth about this exact moment. Because I heard what you did. And he's floored by it. Church, when, when hesed is noticed, when, it's, when it plays out in front of us and seen for what it actually is, truly is, it is rightly, rightly honored and cherished and emulated. It's also incredibly difficult not to fall in love with. It undoes you. It is God's unfailing love, his chesed, that draws us to himself. It is his extreme loyalty to love the unlovely that softens the hardest of hearts. So we're going to see Naomi begin to soften her own bitterness over the course of the story. She's not there yet. I promise you she's not there yet. we got more to talk about next week. But her bitterness seems to have been dealt a blow here. And so she shuts up. It doesn't say another word all the way home. Ruth empties herself of all the things that she is owed. She leaves her family and steps into another's world. And she assumes the burden of Naomi's need by taking that burden upon herself. Ruth looked forward to God's good promises of redemption. And then, well, she totally started acting like him. Started acting like that greater redeemer to come. The question that remains is, do you know this great redeemer? The Bible teaches that we are all by default separated relationally from God because of our sin. That we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. Hell. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus emptied himself of everything that was owed to him. He took on the form of a servant. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice in our place to make payment for our sin. He assumed the burden that we are owed by taking that burden upon himself. He did not merely die, though. He's also raised again and in his resurrection his righteousness was both vindicated and he secured for us the promise of our own future resurrections to be with him and now as the one who conquered both sin and death he calls on us in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith in a second i'm going to pray and we're going to sing that's the time that we set aside to help people just kind of give space for people to put action to the response that god is calling them to if you want to talk let's talk i'm here for it 
But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How, how can we respond? Well, the same way we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's showing us that he has both perfectly modeled unfailing love and calls us to emulate it where we are able. So maybe a massive question you can answer this week is, is simple. Na- Naomi desperately, desperately needed Ruth to cling to her even as she tried to send Ruth away. So, how should we apply that accordingly? Who is God calling you to love this week? Maybe even as they try to fight you off. Say, so, no, 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 you'd be better off without me. And I'd be better off without you. Turn around and go home. I'm not talking about a romantic love or talking about some cheesy rom-com. No, who is God calling you to empty yourself for this week? And through that emptying, God might use you to save them and to model his good character. Or in the case of Ruth, change your life forever. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's formally joining our church family or by committing to be baptized in obedience to what Jesus commanded, or maybe it's time to say yes to Jesus' call on you to take the gospel to somewhere far away from here. Whatever your response needs to be today, let's, let's talk. I'd love to be helpful. Whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for a love that clings beyond reason. Modeled in Ruth, yes, but perfected in your son. Thank you for being the kind of God who clung to save those who had no business being saved and then invites us to show the world what chesed looks like. Whether we struggle with our brokenness like Naomi or you've called us to reach into the brokenness like Ruth, you help us see you better and accurately and love you for it. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call men and women into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.